Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me, on the mic, hosting an episode where I share recent reflection or story from my own life, as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Micah Isagawa. Micah is the CEO of Webacy, the protection layer for self-custody, which we will explain more about in this episode. Webacy develops tools and services to make self-custody safer and easier. Webacy is strictly non-custodial and no access. No seed phrases, private keys, or passwords are needed. Webacy is hella venture-backed, which we will talk about and why... I am here. Micah is also a former professional acrobat and performer for the Cirque du Soleil brand of shows. She attended Stanford University and specialized in artificial intelligence. Micah was most recently a cybersecurity engineer for Microsoft and is a Forbes 30 under 30 lister. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20 Something. Please welcome Micah. Hello. Hello. How's it going? How's uh, hearing that bio back? How does that feel? I personally don't love speaking about myself, so I get kind of embarrassed, but feels good so far. So far, so good. Get ready to speak about yourself. Well, before we get into all the things, I like to start every show with a bit of a fun question, sort of an icebreaker, if you will. You can take this direction any way you want, this, this question. Take this question in any direction. What is something new that you learned in this past week? Oh, that's a great question. So I actually went to lunch today, which is why it's on top of my mind that there's a lot of nuances to research that is not shared too much. So for example, at this lunch today, I was with, it was really funny. It was me with a bunch of like eight 50-year-old men. I don't know why I was there, but it was great and I learned a lot. But one of them was an economics guy, also a professor. And he was speaking about how a lot of economics papers are brilliant, but it's kind of like half math, half economics. Uh, or half like socially related stuff. And for the most part, since they're so mathematic, it's hard to read them. <laughs> and so he was talking about the need for, or even the use of ChatGPT to translate these very technical papers into human readable documents and how that's going to change a lot of how the research is actually presented to the general public. Because right now, it's just academics that are reading these very important papers. So that was some food for thought for my afternoon. I like it. What a cool, what was the event for that you were like with all these people? Was it a bunch of folks that are excited about like frontier stuff, like AI other than otherwise? Or what was the event? I'm not really sure why I was invited into it, but it was just a room full of these older Stanford related guys who were catching up. Many of them were from China, kind of like Stanford grad student related circles. And I just happened to get invited, but it was a great time. Cool. Yeah. I think, uh, it's really exciting to hear folks, in my opinion, that are really specialists talk about ChatGPT because like I think we hear over and over and over again, like in tech circles, a lot of these more like generalist investors who just are excited about the technology, but like maybe are thinking about it in more expected use cases. But then you find like, you know, economics, academics and 
the way they're thinking about things and folks outside of tech, researchers and how they're using this technology. I mean, I'll, I'll shout out my sister. She is in medicine and like she was talking about how she's been poking around with it a bit too. And I was like, how do you know what chat GPT is? So it's really fun to see technology reach these other areas. And I know that you're kind of living and breathing that with all the blockchain stuff that you've done. Like, what does it mean to kind of bring in folks outside of traditional tech circles and business circles into these spaces? But it's just interesting to hear. And I'm glad that you two met. Sounds like an awesome conversation with that guy and a great conversation with everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And AI in particular, I know it's a super hot and trendy topic right now, but it really is at this inflection point. I think I I read something the other day that was, people are always afraid that AI is going to replace humans. But I think what's really on the horizon is that humans are going to be replaced by humans that can use AI, right? So that's kind of the next level that we're going to reach. And I don't think AI replacing humans is coming quite yet, but it's certainly becoming a tool that people need to start learning how to use. I love it. That's very well said. Human plus AI is greater than human without AI versus AI greater than human. I like I find whenever people talk about these things in formulas, it really resonates. So it's like, what's the order of operations here? Okay, also, I did not know this about you. So we'll do a quick context. I am a very small angel investor in your company. And so I obviously know a good amount about you, but I did not know that you specialized in AI at Stanford. So like, let's maybe start with before going to Stanford, what did you think you wanted to do? And how did you discover this world of AI at Stanford? I originally wanted to be an astrophysicist, um, very left field, but, you know, good at math and science growing up in high school, just really leaned that way. I ended up actually spending two years at the University of Minnesota in high school. Instead of going to high school, I went to college. And so I was taking physics and math classes there. So luckily that was honored and transferred to Stanford when I got there, but I came in as a freshman. It was kind of like an AP credit systems type of thing, a little bit of a different program, but similar feel. I started taking physics classes. And then when I took my leave of absence, when I returned from that, I switched to like a computer science symbolic systems major, more engineering. Then within that major, you can actually specialize in different fields. And AI was one of those. And I just felt like it was, again, it's kind of like a trendy hot topic at the time as well when I was in college. But I was also just fascinated by the mix of the humanness and the technical piece of it because I could take philosophy classes, I could take linguistics classes, and I could take all the classes that were interesting to me and still graduate with that major. So that's, that's kind of how that came to be. I love it. And I did not know this about you. So tell me more about the astrophysics side. So like when you're a kid and you're growing up and you're running around and you're like in elementary school, is that what you said you wanted to be? Or was that more of like high school you going and taking these classes at Minnesota? It was definitely a high school classes thing. So I I spent a lot of time watching Food Network, but I also watched History Channel growing up. So some of the aliens, ancient aliens, like what's going on in the universe kind of stuff. I thought it was awesome. But yeah, just didn't end up going that route. I love it. Okay, so then, and then why start the college classes before the high school's over? And I say this because I was literally speaking to like a 15-year-old yesterday who is like building a company. And I'm like, where's the, I mean, I was, I was, I've definitely worked hard as a young person, but when I was in high school, I was like in high school, you know, like I was like going out with friends and like just taking hard classes, but not college classes. Some at AP, but walk me through that. Was that like a parents thing? Was that a you thing? Tell me more about that. Yeah, that was definitely a me thing. Uh, So for freshman and sophomore year of high school, I actually ended up going to an arts conservatory. So I I spent a lot of time in Minnesota growing up. Uh, And so I was in St. Paul. 
And there was an arts conservatory in St. Paul that I thought was super cool. So post middle school, I went to that high school conservatory. And I, my major basically in music, but then the academics were really, really too easy for me. And I think that was like, I spent two years doing such easy academics. I just swung the other way and decided to do, it's called the PSEO program, post-secondary enrollment option. And I think it's, spe- it's specific to Minnesota, but it was just a great opportunity to go do full-time college. It's all free. And if I were to just have gone straight to U of M post-graduation, it would have been two free years of college and everything. So it was a good deal, but also a good opportunity to just study exactly what I wanted. I love it. And talk me more about the music. What, what were you studying at the conservatory? And when did you start studying what you studied? Like most Asian kids, I had been playing piano from a young age. It's either piano or violin is like, I think the stereotype that most people do. But then I, I quit when I was in like middle school, just things got busy otherwise. And then at the high school, I was studying music composition and music theory. So a lot of, it actually gets really mathematical on the music theory side too. So it was a lot of that jazz band, that kind of stuff. Very interesting, but just it, music wasn't really my passion. I just thought it was very interesting and wanted to spend part of my high school doing it. But yeah, no, it's, it's always been a part of my life and will continue to be so, hopefully. I love that. And do you play now? What is your relationship with the piano like now? I know that's a hard question, knowing like you're a founder and life is busy and things are hard, but do you get to still play at all? I wish I could more. I don't have one at home. I have like a small MIDI keyboard that I use sometimes. I went through a period during the pandemic where I was recovering from ACL surgery and it was the pandemic. And so I had a lot more free time. And so I I did some music stuff again, which is really great to get back to. But now I pretty much don't play it anymore. Like once in a while, I'll get to a friend's house that has a piano and it's great, but I've, I've forgotten all the songs. I can still read music very well, but hopefully someday I'll have a little bit more time to get back to it. I love it. Yeah. I, so it's funny you say piano or violin with Asian parents. I played the piano and my sister played the violin. So it's not just Asian parents. It's also Jewish parents, but you know, it's funny. Like I too, I have this like little keyboard and like, I was nowhere probably near as good as you were but I want to get back into it. Like I got it during COVID and like I, it's something that I feel like being musical is something that like I always wanted to be better at. I used to like do musical theater and sing and dance and it's something that like I was never great at, but like I always wanted to be better. So you're inspiring me. Maybe I need to uh, play more piano too. We can inspire each other. I'm ready for your album. I'll be on the lookout. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. So you're at Minnesota, but you're still kind of in high school slash at Minnesota. And then you get into Stanford and you go to Stanford. Why Stanford? I mean, I think it's kind of an obvious question. Stanford's a great place, but why did you want to go there for college? And walk me through kind of your thought process at that time for where you picked your school. And I ask because a lot of our listeners are, we have 20-somethings, but we also have got folks that are kind of like just figuring out the college thing. And so it's always helpful to hear what why people decided what they did. Yeah, I do not envy high school juniors and seniors about their decisions for where to go to college and what to do with their lives because, you know, it's a tough thing to do. Unfortunately, my reasoning for like for Stanford and for college, it's very silly and it's going to sound really dumb. First of all, my favorite color is red. And when I visited Stanford, of course, Stanford's a great school. Yeah. So it's like not a bad decision to apply to. But when I got to the campus, for some reason, when I first like stepped out of the car, once we got there, it smelled like chocolate chip cookies. And I don't know why. It's just, I don't know if it's the trees or whatever. I just had a really good feeling about it. I ended up applying early, got in. I didn't want to pay to apply to any other schools. And that was just kind of it. I love it. Very simple. When things are your favorite color and they smell like chocolate chip cookies, like they are not, you know, resistible for me either. How can you say no? How can you say no? no. And, you know, Stanford's not a bad place to go to school. I can think of other places I would rather go less than Stanford. So you're there and then you hinted at your leave of absence. 
Talk me through the leave of absence and why you left Stanford for a bit. So I ended up having an opportunity to work for Cirque du Soleil. It's kind of a more complicated story than just that, but some people don't know what it is, so it's just easier to leave it at that. But in Minnesota, I used to go to a circus school called Circus Juventus. It's one of the largest youth circuses in the country. So instead of going to soccer practice after school or swimming after school, I went to circus club. And so I did that every day after school for many years of high school and middle school. But I had many of my coaches there actually worked for Cirque du Soleil or worked professionally as circus acrobats. And so I had this opportunity to work for a company called Spiegel World. There's a show called Absinthe in Vegas that's in front of Caesar's Palace, if you've ever seen it. It's like a green tent. So it's not the same company as Cirque du Soleil, but very good, smaller show company. Went to work for them in Australia for a few years, then got synced up with Cirque du Soleil and had the opportunity to work with them. So I ended up on this two-year travel the world leave of absence from Stanford, start to finish. So upon hearing that, it's like, wait a sec. So you're studying really interesting stuff at Stanford. You previously were an amazing musician, and then now you like were able to do acrobats. Before we get into the nuances of the Cirque du Soleil, walk me through what your specialty was. Like when you're at Circus Club, are you doing all the acrobatic stuff? Are you like really flexible? Are you twirling the thing? Like walk me through what's like your thing. Like if I were to go see your show, what am I seeing you doing? What were you good at in Cirque du Soleil? So, so most professional acrobats do tend to specialize in one thing or another. The circus school I went to, for the most part, you do everything. They teach you tumbling, aerial stuff, hand balancing, acrobatics. You do it all, especially if you're really dedicated to it, you end up just taking all the classes. For Cirque, I performed as an aerialist. So for the two shows I was in, one was aerial straps with a partner and one was aerial rings. And that was a solo act. Uh, so they're both aerial, very high, like flying in the air, upper body, that kind of stuff. Wow. Okay. So while you're at Stanford for the couple years in between the leave of absence and your work in Minnesota, were you doing like a circus club at Stanford? Like, or were you keeping up your skills or was it something that you just kind of, it was like muscle memory you were able to kind of get back to pretty easily? So when I got to Stanford, I was there for one quarter. Stanford's on the quarter system. So three months and then the opportunity came to leave. So I was still in pretty good shape decided to leave right away, but it was a quick turnaround. Wild. Okay. And what's like the most unexpected thing that maybe listeners and myself would not know about Cirque du Soleil and being a circus performer? Is there something that you're like, oh, most people don't realize that X? Maybe that the, the performers are actually just super normal human beings that are really, really good at what they do. Um, like, because you get to know the cast, right? They're They're just regular people that fall in love. There are so many people that got engaged on the show or got, had kids. They fight, they complain, they're like princesses or they're awesome and just say nothing. They're just completely regular people that happen to be crazy good at one athletic thing. Uh, but when you're, when you're a spectator, it's like, a, it's like Disney World. It's like a whole transformation of your reality. And so I think that's one fun fact that I feel like I got to see behind the scenes. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I've been to a couple Cirque shows and I'm blown away, blown away. I mean, it's even more than Disneyland. Disneyland, people are just like singing and dancing. Like this is like, I can't, you can't even imagine the levels of strength and flexibility that you see when you go to a Cirque show. That's very cool. I'm so glad you had that opportunity. Was there a favorite place that you visited because you got to travel so much where you maybe otherwise would not have gone or that you want to go back to that was so special? Totally. 
So we went to Sochi for a couple months. I don't think I would ever go to Russia for like, I would only go for work or if I had some sort of reason to go. I mean, I would love to travel there regardless, but we were there. We got to perform within the stadiums that house the Winter Olympics. So like the Bolshoi Ice Stadium and stuff. And it was just such a cool experience. Oh, I love that. I'm obsessed with the Olympics to like an unreasonable amount. So hearing you say that, I'm like, the dream is that I can go to every Olympics ever just as a spectator. Have you, have you been in person to one? Yeah, I went to the Vancouver Olympics. And then I think that's it. Yeah, the Vancouver Olympics were like a very long time ago. And then I know my mom, there was one uh, in Salt Lake City that like my mom went to forever ago. So we have some of that, like some of her tickets and like posters and stuff. And then obviously we have LA coming up, which is going to be amazing. And then we have Paris next year. So we've got some like good locations. So we'll see. But that's like the dream. You know, we got to work hard now. And then eventually we can just like go to any Olympics we want and not have to work. Yes. <laughs> Catch us there in 20 years. Okay, so you take your leave of absence. What causes you to come back to school? And did you always know you were going to finish your degree or were you thinking you would continue on for a long time on these shows? Yeah. So I always knew I would come back, but the, honestly, the main catalyst for coming back was that Stanford has this two year limit to your leave of absence. So you can cut it up and leave for like two quarters at one time and two quarters another time. But I think it's eight quarters total, not counting summer that you can be gone. So I I hit that limit and it was, you know, review or like renewal of the contracts. And so it was just really good timing. To, to leave and get back to school. And how was the rest of your time there? It sounds like you really had the remainder of your experience post-Cirque, right? It was like, you know, four years minus a quarter. So how was the rest of your time there at Stanford? It was great, actually. I, I didn't, I don't think I got the full, you know, four years in college. You get in as a freshman, you rush a sorority, you stay there, and then you graduate. But I'm very happy with how it ended up. I actually ended up only at Stanford for three years because of my transfer credits. But I found, I reconnected with my previous class, which was awesome. And then I also made a lot of new friends with the new class. So it was a lot of overlapping years, new experiences, joined some clubs where I made some of my closest friends now. But college is just so great. I, I was actually on campus today and I was just thinking about how amazing it is to be back in school and be a student. The best. I know it's funny. I Sometimes I will go back to my old college and I'll like go to my favorite coffee shop and I'll just like sit there. I'm like, wow, I just miss the energy. You know, like there's just, you can't really replace like the enthusiasm. And Stanford is actually a unique place where you really feel that, like the energy of everyone that's just working on great ideas and the professors are so passionate and happy to be there. It's just like the greatest. Okay, so you're graduating Stanford. What did you think about for your next career move? Like post-grad, you've now, you studied at a music conservatory, you've done the Cirque thing, you've studied all this really interesting technical stuff but we can clarify more specifically excited about the human and technical stuff combined. What's like the the thought around the career move post Stanford? I wish I had clarity in my thought. It was chaos at the time because I graduated in 2020. So the pandemic kicked us out during my senior year. And so we had all like scattered home. I was finishing my senior year of college on my kitchen table of my mom's house in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So it's just a wild time. And at this point, you're, you're a senior, you're recruiting at different places, right? You're doing interviews for startups, you're doing interviews for big companies. I personally had talked to a few friends who had their offers rescinded from startups because of the pandemic and people didn't know what was going on. So I had a really great opportunity to work for Microsoft. They had an offer out. I thought they would not rescind it. And so they didn't. <laughs> and so I ended up going to Microsoft, which is, I spent a really, really nice year there learning from a lot of different people. And uh, walk me through what it's like to be at Microsoft as an entrepreneur personality. I always find this very interesting. Like I will say I've done a couple gigs where 
consulting gig, more of a traditional finance gig, where it's just like the classic bureaucratic, like great org, but big org. And as someone who's very entrepreneurial, it was like a challenge, a real challenge to get me to like work for other people. I always joke, like it takes someone very special for me to be okay working under them and with them. Like I really have to like them and like what they're doing, be able able to move fast with them. So what was your, what was your experience like as someone who's obviously now very entrepreneurial? Yes. I only have positive things to say about Microsoft, but I think my, my college experience, all of my internships were at startups where I was working with such excellent people, having so much high impact, even as a college student, that I did want that big company experience out of college. So Microsoft was a great option for me to experience that. But the, the organization at the point of the company that I joined, it was kind of like you mentioned, it was extremely bureaucratic. And the, the system or the cohort I joined in was kind of this college cohort. So it was a lot of training program, a lot of ramp up. And it was a lot of checking boxes that I know how to optimize, but I didn't feel like I was actually putting effort into it. Or I was trying to, I, I was figuring out how do I get done what they need me to get done, but not actually like growing as an individual. I think that I didn't fit well within the structured rules. It wasn't really working with how I worked. So I, I had a hard time enjoying the work. I, I felt kind of boxed in. And then clearly my brain was going to all the other things I could be doing, like the the ideas that ended up starting Webacy. But yeah, it was, it was tough, but it was also a great time because I think, you know, post-pandemic, it's nice to have a solid job or during the pandemic, I guess. But yeah, d- definitely learned a lot about what it's like working at a larger company. And it's good to have that experience, I think. I always say like, it's good to do it for a bit. Ideally, you do it as like an internship. So it's like done and done. It's like three months and you're done. But a year is perfect. It's great. You get to meet interesting people. You get to see what it's like to be in a big bureaucracy. And then, you know, when you scale Webacy, you're like, this is, this is what I can model it after, right? When you're the size of Microsoft. Okay, so walk me through the early days of Webacy. And we'll make sure in this chat too, there's a lot of folks who are super comfortable with like a lot of the crypto language and Web3 language, some folks a little less so. So we'll make sure we're like pausing to kind of talk through things in as best and a clearest way we can. Yeah, Webacy, it started from a very philosophical place. So my background... I'm half Japanese. I was raised both in the East and the West. It actually came from a pretty morbid place. So the the trigger for the idea was that I had a cousin that was closer to my age who passed away. And because he's closer to my age, he had a ton of digital assets, social media. And then there's a team member that had someone who had a lot of crypto, right? So we were talking as friends about, okay, what happens to all of our stuff when we die? And it's a super morbid topic, but me coming from Asia, like it's not that like, taboo to talk about. In the States, it kind of is for a lot of families and people. But we were thinking about that and then realizing, okay, maybe a decade from now, people are going to have a lot more digital assets that need to be managed and inherited and passed on. Uh, And so especially within the crypto space, we realized that there's no management or inheritance product out there. People are still figuring out blockchain in general. People are still figuring out, you know, crypto and then NFTs were on the rise. People were looking and trading JPEGs. But I was thinking about structurally what's going to be necessary for this to grow and scale and be a useful technology 100 years from now. So we first built a crypto will. And also, please interrupt me because I feel like this is just going to be like a, I love a story that goes on. Well, let's, let's pause there for a sec. So basically, give me, give me okay. the timestamp. When is this happening? What month? What month? What year? August 2021, I incorporated Webacy. Okay. 
So August 2021. Still, while I'm at Microsoft. <laughs> okay, yeah, I know. That's, so, that's always so weird. And people are like, when did you think about that? I'm like, I was still employed. Okay, so basically for those, just to, to like a quick recap, everyone's very familiar with having digital identities. Everyone has social media for the most part. And a lot of people now own crypto, but it lives online. And so like, what do you do when you die? Or what do you do if someone you love dies and you're supposed to inherit that? Just recapping it, but keep going. No, that's a perfect recap. And the problem piece there too, even in our traditional like web two regular life, when someone passes away, it's an absolute mess to deal with their stuff. And it's such a small percentage of American adults have a will that it's it's really difficult. So like even I have gone through like setting up my will at this age because it's really important. It's a good practice. Anyways, I digress. So yeah, we built a crypto will. That was the first product. So this is a completely on-chain no passwords, no seed phrase, like you mentioned in the beginning, or no access. So we never have access to your assets. It's more of a software layer for you to build and deploy your own will on chain so that when you pass away, your beneficiaries or whoever you set as your beneficiaries can retrieve the assets that you have. And when you say on chain, so crypto will on chain. So most people are used to having like, let's say a, a will where they just sign some documents online. They add in their passwords. Like this is my Instagram password. This is my bank account password. I mean, I'm really overgeneralizing here, but people are used to just typing stuff in on a website online. Tell me what it means to do that versus do something on chain, which is what you're doing. Well, here's the thing with blockchain is that if you if you have a Fidelity account and then maybe you can prove the person's identity with their birth certificate, their death certificate, and you can you can pretty much get access to that with some processes. But when you take crypto and crypto accounts, if you don't have the seed phrase or the password or the private key to access it, you can't get in. There's no third party or man on the other line to help you get into the account, which is why this solution or what we've built and the management processes that we're building now is so critical to blockchain. Because if you lose access to that, whether it's because someone passed away or because you forgot your password in general, you can't recover it. So that's why you see in New York Times and all of these big media companies, they'll post something or they'll write an article about this man threw away his hardware wallet and has lost $2 million of Bitcoin, right? This, these stories come up way too often. And it's because of that key piece of the blockchain technology, which is both a security function and a huge flaw to access. Okay, that was like the, the million dollar line right there, that it's both a security and a huge flaw. So if you lose the magical 12 word phrase that's going to get you access that no fidelity person can get you into, then you're screwed. And so I think that's really where this use case comes in too, which is so interesting. Is like, it's not just when people die, but like, what if you lose the thing? Then what? Okay, keep going. I want to I clarify on-chain equals blockchain and why that is so important. Yes, thank you. So yeah, we, we built that product. We realized that the technology was extremely powerful for not just estate planning, but for security while you're still alive. Another caveat I learned as a early stage founder that it's really hard to get people to care about death, especially when many of the crypto holders are quite young or don't have enough assets to think about it, right? Like maybe 10K in assets, that seems like a small amount versus someone who has 2 million in assets. The 2 million in assets person is probably thinking about estate planning, right? So a lot of the people in crypto, the critical mass have less than a certain amount of money. So they're not even thinking about it right now. So we realized that this technology could be adapted into something that's useful to them today. And then we could kind of trickle them into setting this up on the back end, right? Like if you're already in our system, it's only a few more clicks for you to set up this, the responsibility tool that we have ready for you. So we ended up adjusting the technology 
to also have a product for loss of access. So like I mentioned, forgetting the seed phrase, losing the private key, what have you. Also panic button. So this is kind of an emergency eject in case of hacks, scams. So many billions of dollars has been lost in crypto already. Not only things like giant companies getting hacked, but also just individuals getting hacked. Social engineering, link hacking, so stuff like that. And then finally, our, our most recent product, which has actually been the most popular, is notifications and monitoring. So monitoring all of the on-chain activity. Because right now, when you have your wallet, there's not an easy way to know what's going on with it. So we built the solution to that. I love it. So to explain a wallet too, a wallet is where you store your, we'll say digital money. What do we say? Crypto tokens? Crypto money? What do you, how do you frame it? Your digital... I think you can interchange. I call it crypto, but you crypto. can really call it whatever you okay, want. Okay, so you have this digital wallet. And so that's when we're saying wallet, that's what she's referring to. It's where all of that crypto lives. And knowing what's coming in and what's coming out. So like, let's say you buy a Bitcoin and it says, or more likely actually probably a Bitcoin has been removed or it's been hacked away. Instead of just showing up one day, logging in and being like, oh my God, where did it go? The product says, ping, it looks like something is being removed or it looks like something is in the process of being removed. So that, you know, it's like, it's just like getting a bank account notification that someone bought a $5 Starbucks on your card and you didn't give them your card. You know, I mean, that's oversimplifying and someone's probably spending more than $5 on your card. But am I explaining that right? Like what this notifications piece is for people? What is that equivalent for the world we live in now? No, I think that's the perfect example. It's kind of like getting a credit card notification about a transaction. And just it just gives you the chance to verify, did you make that transaction or not? And it not only is it things moving in and out, but on chain, there's you can get you can grant something or someone the power to move things in and out. And that's something that we can also read and notify you of. So I could say, oh, Erica just got access to move assets in my wallet. If I didn't give that to you, then I know something's wrong with my wallet. Right. It gives me a chance to recover or save some of the assets that might get hacked. It's almost like having like emergency contacts. Like, you know, when I was getting older, I remember my mom, she was like, put me on your things. You know, if God forbid something happens, any bank account things or whatever, if she needs to, she can handle whatever. I have my own accounts, I have my own things, but you know, your partner, your husband, your wife, your whatever, they can have access. And so I think what I've been so impressed by with you is, you know, with all this blockchain stuff, obviously we've seen the ups, we've seen the downs, but it's always really hard to speak to the general public about the importance of these things and comparing it to like the web two world or like the current world that we all know of and live in. And I think so much of like the mission that you're building for is to really make sure like every single person is protected, especially like I think of like my 90-year-old grandfather who, you know, like if he happened, he doesn't want to buy crypto, which is a whole other conversation. But if he wanted to, like, it's like, you know, a platform like yours that can make sure he's protected. You don't have to be super technical and sophisticated to make sure that like he isn't going to get hacked and there aren't going to be issues. And so that's what I get really excited about. Obviously, this is your company and you're doing awesome stuff. But I think it's like the education and the conversations you're having about how it compares to Web2. And then it's also like making it accessible to those that, you know, maybe otherwise wouldn't feel comfortable buying any crypto in the first place. I appreciate that. But you're, you're the one serving me analogies on a silver platter. <laughs> so I will take those with me and then... We can serve each other analogies. Okay, so how <laughs> have you liked being a founder? I mean, obviously, like a lot of folks that start things, there's sort of no other choice for them to ultimately build things. And I know you've been on this journey for a bit and you've really started to scale. So, and taken on VC funding and really built a lot of products, as you mentioned. How do you like it? I love it. 
I have grown and learned more within the year and a half of running this company than I have probably doing anything else. Yeah, the people I meet are incredible. Clearly, we, we've met through this. But yeah, I would always make this choice over and over again. And how do you, so a lot of people see in the news, which I will say, you sent the funniest meme the other day. I was like dying. You know, there's been some crazy stuff going on. We obviously, SVB crisis happened to everyone in tech, but specifically the crypto world has had these crazy things. FTX is probably the thing that most people know of. How do you take care of yourself, your mental health, your company, despite all these waves? And especially in an industry like crypto where Bitcoin prices, token prices rising up and down day to day, you know, companies getting funding slash funding, like it's, it's so volatile. Walk me through like how you're taking care of yourself. And also selfishly, I'm asking because like, I want to make sure you are taking care of yourself. <laughs> well, thank you for asking. Yeah, I think everyone, regardless of if you're in crypto or not, probably needs to check in because we've been through quite the, the cooler the last couple of years, just globally with everything going on. But I think for me, I'm very lucky because WebSC, the mission that we're building towards and the the area that we're in of crypto, it's very easy to wake up every day and want to work on it because security is something that's going to always matter. As we saw, even, you know, FTX, centralized, SVB, centralized bank. So they might just be signals that self-custody is a great option for us to move to. Decentralization, buzzword, but so important. <laughs> Such it's a, a great word. thing to move yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's it's kind of valid. It's horrible. And it has thrown the entire industry through a loop. But it is also validating that some of the technologies that we're working on and improving is necessary and maybe valuable for the future of technology. Yeah. 100%. We might as well try. You might as well try. <laughs> we, can try. <laughs> we can try. I also work out a lot. That's my other sanity moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. You work out a lot. What do you do? I would imagine you have to if you were like doing all the, air, you know, the acrobats for a while, acrobatics. But what do you do? What's your workout routine? Yeah, I, I'm not as intense as I used to be. And that's understandable. But very Bay Area tech bro of me. I got into climbing over the pandemic, rock climbing. But I've had a couple injuries non-related to rock climbing. So lately, it's just been like cardio, weights, hand balancing, very simple stuff, which is something to sweat. Every I'm obsessed day. with you saying very simple stuff. Did you say hand balancing? What did you just say? I could rephrase it as calisthenics. Sure. <laughs> People know that word. People know that word. That is like definitely not easy. For me, I'm like, oh, what I do is easy. I walk. <laughs> I go on the stairs. I go on the treadmill once in a while. That's so funny. Okay, well, I could keep talking about this stuff forever. I think what you're doing is so interesting. Obviously, I believe in you and I believe in your team. And it's been so fun to just be, you know, a small part of this journey and can't wait to see how it continues to evolve. One last question before we wrap. We ask all our guests this, and it'll be especially interesting because you yourself are a 20-something, but what is that one piece of advice that you would give to all 20-somethings, regardless of if they're in business, if they're excited about crypto or not, just a 20-something that's figuring it out, what's the one advice you have for them? One piece of advice. My, my very serious and non-serious piece of advice is to get enough sleep because that's something I struggle with a lot because there's so much to do, right? But if I had to pick something that's an actual tangible piece of advice, it would be that it's really that don't compare yourself to the people around you kind of thing. Like compare yourself to in your box. Your value is to you and yourself only, not to external people. And that's something that I have to deal with pretty regularly because you're always surrounded by people who are ahead of you, quote unquote, killing the game, appears on the surface to be crushing all aspects of life. And if you're surrounded by people better than you, that's great for you to grow. 
but it's also really easy to fall into the trap of comparing yourself. But everyone's journey is different. I love that. I think both pieces of advice are extremely tactical. So is the get more sleep. Let's just be very clear. People need sleep. I love that. And are there any things that you do to make sure that you're gut checking yourself, that you're only really comparing you to you and you're not getting in the game of like comparing yourself to others? Do you have any practices or, or tips for that? Quite honestly, it's kind of um, my, my close friends and support system that keep me in check because I'd fall for it all the time. Like I will fall into, I'll, I'll talk to someone and just be like, oh man, they're, they're so centered. They're so on top of it. They always know what to do. And then someone will check me and say, you, you're doing great, that kind of thing, right? So I, I really unfortunately do rely on feedback from the people that I, I consider close to me, but I'm also very grateful to have them around. I love it. And I think it then builds that muscle for you to then check yourself and be like, I'm good. I'm on the right track. I will just be humble myself for a second and say, I was at a dinner uh, a few weeks ago. I flew up to SF for the day and I went to this dinner with all these brilliant, brilliant female investors. Specifically, it was a woman VC event uh, where they all invest in AI. And I know the basics and I'm learning every day and I'm pretty, I can be, I can speak the technical language a bit without being an engineer, but the pace with which AI is moving and every single day there are new, you know, movements forward the, and they spend all day, every day talking about these things. I felt like the dumbest person in the room. And I'll be honest, like I was like, I have nothing to contribute, but I'm so excited to sit here and just hear all of you talk about all these brilliant things. And so I think it's like, it's good reminder to, I think when you're in the situations, frame it as like, wow, you're so brilliant. I'm here to listen and learn, but then not beat yourself up. Like I was driving away and I was like, oh my God, I hope they don't think I just like took up a bunch of space and, you know, but it's like, no, it's okay. Sometimes I have something to say. Sometimes I don't. And they're doing their thing and they're focused on that full time. And I'm not, it's a part-time thing for me. I'm always trying to stay on top of it. So I had one of those moments too. And uh, it's important to reframe. Otherwise you can get definitely down a bad rabbit hole for sure. Totally. That's the kind of room you want to be in though. At least I, I want to be in those Me too. Rooms. But I want to feel like Smarter people. <laughs> those people aren't annoyed that I'm in the room. You know what I'm saying? Like when everyone is contributing something and sometimes you really feel, especially when it comes to technical stuff, like I know my place. Like I'm not going to talk out of my ass, you know? So anyway, it's the rooms you want to be in, but it can, it can be hard. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. Can you give everyone like a quick where they can find you on socials? If maybe they do want to set up their own account with Webacy, like where should they go? What can they do? Give the quick rundown. You can find me at Maika Isogawa, M-A-I-K-A-I-S-O-G-A-W-A on virtually every platform, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever. And then for for Webacy, the easiest thing is to sign up for Wallet Watch, which is completely free. So if you have a crypto wallet like a MetaMask, a Ledger, you can connect to Webacy and sign up for Wallet Watch and get notifications right away. I love it. I love it. And obviously we'll link everything in show notes. Micah, thank you for coming. This was so fun. I'm glad we got to spend some time together. Thank you. I'm really, really glad we got to chat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts. 